Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to yet another episode of Lost in Science. It is it is a beautiful beautiful time for science, isn't it? I think you can all agree. When isn't it a beautiful time for science, Chris? Never, Stu. That's that's quite correct. And especially um, for the half hour that Lost in Science is, is is coming through you. My name is Chris, and today I have some quantum weirdness that I'm going to talk about. Not quantum strangeness? No, quantum weird. Well, it could be strangeness, but strangeness means a particular thing, so we won't go down that okay. particular path. Um, <laughs> yeah, quantum, speaking, speaking of particular paths. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I know quantum weirdness, I'm talking about how you can look at something without looking at it, without shining any light on it. How you can, you know, you can see something without any using light, but no light actually hits the object. Oh, not just how I look at things when I don't have my glasses on. This, I look at it, but I don't really look at it. Don't. <laughs> What do you squint? Very yeah. zen, it's very zen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Claire, you don't have your glasses on now. <laughs> so, uh, what are you looking at today? <laughs> Not sure. Not sure. No. Um, today, I have a couple of special guests. I'm going to be talking to the Vic Hyper team, who are a team of university students um, who who got together to put in an entry into Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX Hyperloop competition. Imagine like a um, a huge track which is in it like a tube track with no air in it. So it's a vacuum and you've got like um, this sort of bullet capsule racing through it at like at thousands of kilometres. It's like at the supermarket where they put the, the cash in one of those little things. Yeah. 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 Or on the opening credits of Futurama. Yeah, exactly. The right. opening credits of Futurama, but right here, right now. Okay. But not really because it hasn't happened yet. But it could be the future of transportation. And Vic Hyper went over to SpaceX and competed with some of the world's greatest. Um, they were the only people in the Southern Hemisphere to go over. So I'm going to be catching up with them about what they learned and what they did and um, what the future of Hyperloop technology in Victoria and Australia is. Do they build a vacuum tunnel through the Earth to get there? No, but um, SpaceX have a, like a 1.6-kilometre vacuum tunnel. Wow. Yeah, I know. It, I mean, it's it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Um, another mode of transportation. Just the idea. It's it's very big picture. I really love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Elon Musk really is like a super criminal from Hank Scorpio. Yeah. He's Hank. He, <laughs> he's Hank Scorpio. I mean, we love talking about how much he's like Hank Scorpio. Um, Only but, he's a force for good. But yeah. yes, let's hope he's a benevolent. Frank Scorpio rather than a malevolent or just the Frank Scorpio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, yeah. Like, more like Tony Stark than Frank Scorpio. Yeah, yeah, possibly. yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 Stu, what are you doing? Uh, well, I'm actually talking about something a bit more mundane than the future of uh, transport on Earth, um, but something that does affect millions, if not billions of people. I'm talking about allergies, and I'm going to be talking to Dr. Ray Steptoe about a breakthrough they have made with mice. Now, that might seem like it's a long way off from helping anyone, but what they've actually done in these mice is turned off their allergic responses to allergens. So they've got mice that are allergic to something and they've switched off the the allergic response so that they're no longer allergic to what they were allergic to before, which 
could be a huge leap forward in uh, you know hay fever and even life-threatening al- allergies like peanut allergies and things like that, potentially. But uh, we'll hear more from uh, Dr. Steptoe. And if we're lucky, we'll hear a mouse sneeze and know what that sounds like. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Uh, well, more of that coming up on with the show. <laughs> Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and quantum physics is weird. I think we can all agree with that. I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah. What was it Richard Feynman said that anyone who says they understand it is probably lying, something along those lines? <laughs> yeah, I think he was lying as well. <laughs> so what we're looking is looking at how it is possible to take a picture of something without shining any light or other radiation on it. Now, this was kind of suggested, I saw it in a paper that was published recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Um, it was done by some Chinese physicists. Um, they called their paper Direct Counterfactual Communication via Quantum Zeno Effect. I had to read out the title because it sounds pretty cool. It does sound cool, but what does it mean? Uh, well, Quantum yeah. Zeno Effect, I tell you, it sounds like something from Doctor Who, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really they're getting, does. The Quantum Zeno Effect is happening. Um, I'm sure it'll turn up in Doctor Who over the next couple will have of to, years. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, look, okay, so I'm going to try and explain in simple terms what this means. And, Please. And, and baffle everybody out there, including myself. Um, so have you heard of the double slit experiment? Oh, yeah, totally. Do that, you know- I do know about the double slit experiment. <laughs> <laughs> So this is where, yeah, it gets worse because this is where, like, you shine a light on two slits in, a, in an obstacle. Yeah. And, yeah. And so the light acts like a wave and it makes an interference pattern on the, on the other side. Yes. yes. But isn't it sort of proof that light is both a wave and a particle? Yeah, yeah, because you can send through one photon at a time and it somehow goes through both slits and interferes with itself, which is against God in nature, I think, as we'll all agree. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, so more innuendo there is what I'm doing. Anyway, but if you block off one of the slits, then the photon will act like a particle and it will only go through the other slit, obviously. But what's happening there is the photon is being affected by what was blocking the other slit, uh, even though it hasn't gone through that slit, it's gone through the, the open slit. So it hasn't hit the thing that's blocking the slit, but it still is being affected by it. Hmm. So it still knows it's there. So this is the key to this whole kind of concept, that something can affect it without it actually touching the photon. Yeah, so then in 2013, some physicists from Saudi Arabia and the United States, they used this idea to come up with a way to use that principle to communicate between two people without sending any particles between them. So it's the same, same basic idea, but they jazz it up a bit. Um, so what basically you have two people, conventionally you call them Alice and Bob. That's the conventions in these communication kind of theoretical type of things. Uh, now here Alice sends a photon, well, a single photon through a, a path that has a beam splitter on it. Okay, a beam splitter basically does what it sounds like. It splits a beam into two, two halves, um, except that this one is designed so that almost all the photons go, say, on the left path and very few, almost none go on the, on the right path. Bob, though, Bob is sitting on the right-hand side and he puts a particle detector on the right-hand side. So if Bob switches on his particle detector, he will know which way the photon has gone and the photon has to act like a particle, can only go one way. So it can't act like a wave because Bob is making it, got a particle detector there. So it'll have to, he makes it act like a particle just by making his measurement. Whether or not the photon goes down his path or not. It's like, you know, if you measure which slit it goes through, yeah. it has to act like a, a particle, right? You got, I've seen yeah. some confused no, no, I'm following. movements of heads. So yeah, that's, that's basically like this. What they calculated that if you did this with an, if you had a lot of these, like a series of these kind of apparatus all lined up, like an, 
theoretically an infinite number of them, um, these beam splitters and detectors, basically 100% of photons would have to go on the left-hand path if Bob switched on all the detectors. And from the way that they behave when you get to the end, you can tell whether it had been acting like a particle because of Bob switching on all the detectors or whether if he didn't switch on his detectors, it would act more like a wave and you could actually make a measurement that would tell that from how it acts at the other end. So Alice can basically tell whether Bob has switched on his detectors or not, mm. even though no photons have actually gone through Bob's detectors. All the photons have gone in the left-hand side. Weird. Weird. So this is a theoretical thing. Now, obviously, it's not possible to build this because infinite detectors. No one has that kind of budget. <laughs> um, the, these Chinese researchers, they found a kind of a shortcut. They used some clever timing to send the photons back and forth multiple times. It wasn't perfectly efficient. Apparently, 1.4% of the photons leaked through to the right-hand side. But they used this thing to send a message from basically from Bob to Alice. In this case, it was a uh, 100 by 100 pixel picture of a kind of a stylized Chinese knot pattern. And it came out with 87% accuracy. So it's not perfectly accurate either. But essentially, it showed how the theory works. You can, in, the- in principle, send a message from one person to another without actually any photons being exchanged just by using this quantum trick effect. So this has been suggested as a way of doing a communication that you can't intercept it. I mean, if no particles are being exchanged, you can't actually intercept it. That's debated. There are some theorists who disagree with that, that it would work like that. But this also setup wouldn't work for that because of the way that it's arranged. It's not really much of a communication if they're both in the same room with their detectors and this kind of thing. Well, almost on the opposite side of a table or something. Essentially, you know, yeah, not, yeah. You might as well just say, hey. Uh, I'll tell you what I was going to tell you anyway. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> um, but someone could eavesdrop on that, Stuart. Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. But what they did suggest is that you could connect this surprise up to a camera and you could essentially, if you had something, say, an ancient piece of art that was very sensitive and you couldn't expose it to light, you could take pictures of it using this system um, without actually having any photons hit. The artwork. The artwork, yeah. So what exactly is carrying the information then, if there are no photons are hitting it, isn't clear. It's somehow in the quantum wave function, even though no particles are hitting it. But yeah, in theory, it's a way of looking at things without actually using any, any light hitting it, which is a pretty kind of freaky concept. I think Richard Feynman was right. If this makes sense to you, then you don't really get it. But it's pretty cool, and it just shows you how weird the quantum world is. Forget bullet trains and high-speed rail. The future of transport is being redefined by SpaceX with the development of a fifth mode of transportation, the Hyperloop. Think a pod carrying people through a vacuum, travelling at the speed of sound. Now, to bring this sci-fi transport to life, SpaceX held a worldwide competition challenging the best and brightest to create a Hyperloop technology. And with me in the studio, I have members of the Australian team, Vic Hyper, who are engineering students from RMIT, who are the only team in the Southern Hemisphere to get to the finals of this competition. Welcome to Lost in Science, Zach and John. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Can you give us an explanation of what Hyperloop technology actually is? So to put it simply, Hyperloop is a large tube network. You evacuate all the air out of that tube. Right. You put in a capsule that can transport either people or cargo. You levitate it and then you accelerate it up to the speed of sound, so 1,200 k's an hour. Oh, it sounds simple. Oh, real simple. <laughs> it is. It is. Like, we'll have it built tomorrow, I think. <laughs> So that's the idea. Obviously, this is an improvement on technology right now if you're going at those sorts of speeds. Are there any other improvements? Well, the main, one of the main principles behind the technology is connecting people. So at the moment, you have 
Australian landscape where it's very centralised to the East Coast with three main capital cities. The idea of the Hyperloop is connectivity between rural Australia and city hubs as well. Yeah, but it's about making, as John said, about making the CBD to CBD are pretty much one a mega region, so all the cities are so close and being able to do that via renewable energy-powered transportation. It is a renewable energy-powered transportation? Originally, that's the idea, and it's trying to follow through with that, yes. Can you just back up a little bit and tell us the story of how Vic Hyper sort of happened? How far back do you want me to go? (laughs) So the start was pretty funny because I'm from country New South Wales myself, so as John just said there, it's about connecting those places, but... I got a phone call from my, my friend who's the other co-founder of the team and he was like, oh, I found this awesome competition. And I didn't think much about it, but five hours later on the drive back to Melbourne, I was like, yeah, let's do it. So we started the team. We, there was seven aerospace engineers at the start. We just started sending in um, our designs and we started progressing through to the point where we got from the um, original 1700 to 130 that went to Texas in January 2016. Wow, and how long is this timeline? Is this like... So that was over about, uh, that was from September through to January. So it was, what's that, five months or something? Yeah. Four months? Yeah, yeah. And, and you're sending them through to... Yeah, so through to, actually the guy in charge is the head of innovation at SpaceX, used to be the director of SpaceX. Um, wow, okay. So, I mean, you know, you sort of want to have something pretty good when you send it through to the head of innovation at SpaceX. Yeah, it was actually interesting. We uh, One of our presentations was sitting there and all the judges were introducing themselves. And they're like, oh, we work for SpaceX, we work for Tesla, we're academics, and one guy I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an academic. Oh, and I'm a 36-year veteran of NASA. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, so we all freaked out a little bit then. But, yeah, they were these very high-end engineers that we were trying to impress. So, And at that stage, we presented our braking system and our full system, and we actually won the uh, Technical Excellence Award for the best braking system, wow. which was awesome. Because I can imagine when you're trying to engineer um, a capsule, like flying through a vacuum, you know, it's going to be easy to get it up to speed, but then slowing it down is the hard part. Is that right? A bit of both. Okay. So there's the most amount of energy used within the whole system will be getting it up to speed. Okay. And uh, we're looking to try and design the system where it can coast at our um, specified speed, say 1,200 k's yeah. an hour. The challenge at the other end of the tube is trying to brake. And when you're braking, you're having to capture energy and then expel that energy somehow. So yeah, the there's a lot one, of friction, right? That's well, There'll be um, magnetic, uh-huh. electromagnetic friction in a sense where the return energy needs to be handled somehow and the most easiest way to do that would be with heat. But as Zach was saying, we're, we're trying to design a system that is, uh, has elements of renewable energy and regeneration around it. So we'll be capturing that braking energy um, while we're braking. And the fact that it can coast is the reason why we need a good braking system because it actually doesn't slow down itself. It just coasts along at that speed. So you need that good braking system, magnetic braking system, to be able to do the job. You want it to be able to slow down, don't you? It's you really want, something We, we find it's a quite an important factor for safety. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So you went to Texas, was it? Yeah, so yep, Texas. You went yep. to Texas and you won a prize yes. um, for the best braking system. And then what happened? So after that, we got accepted into the final round. So there was wow. only, so there was 22 teams announced on the day, and then we were one of the wild cards. The next one of the next eight that got announced into the thing. Uh, I think our 
our supervisor says, well, we're in trouble now because <laughs> <laughs> we all knew that we had to actually build the prototype after that. So Wow. So at, at that stage, it was just ideas on, on paper and sort of just, you know, yeah, just was, theoretical. Cons- there was uh, conceptual design with a detail on construction, but taking something from paper and uh, building it, there's inevitably new challenges <laughs> that come along. <laughs> a lot of challenges we found out. And one, um, one of the big challenges that we were presented with is SpaceX, actually, because we had a very complex system when we went over there. SpaceX advised us to simplify the system and just focus on our brakes, which meant we had to do a full redesign so of the whole system. So when we got back from Texas, we actually decided that seven aerospace engineers don't have much of an idea mm. about an electrical system. <laughs> so we just expanded the team to where we had 30 members on the team across all colleges at university at RMIT. So That's right. Yeah. One of the most effective teams I found on the team was the media and comms, where you're quite isolated when you're studying an engineering uh, degree at any university. But um, being pushed into an atmosphere where you're dealing with other disciplines and seeing the... Uh, the work that those guys are putting into it, it really boosted the team's capacity to take it on sponsors and uh, bring in funds into the team to help us build the project, which was amazing. Just for people listening to this um, as to what they can imagine in their mind as what a Hyperloop sort of pod would look like, can you sort of give a, give a brief description of it? So I think the best way I've put it, just like an aircraft without wings. The aircraft have to go through, they've got a pressure differential themselves. They've got, to, uh, they've got to keep a high pressure on the inside and a lower pressure on the outside, same as spacecraft. So it means a, c- a cylinder's the best for doing that. So And it needs to be lightweight, so we don't need to all these forces to levitate it and accelerate it. So pretty much, yeah, fuselage of an aircraft, take off the wings, put it in a tube and sling it down there at a speed of sound. <laughs> You've made it to the finals and you've had to do a huge redesign. You've had to get all these sponsors on board. What is it that sets your capsule and your Hyperloop design apart from everybody else? Uh, well, we found out in the end it was our braking. So we thought we were lucky getting through the first round even because we, we beat out MIT and Stanford that for the braking system award. But um, even at the finals, that we got commended on, especially on the electrical side, on the, the brakes that we had and then how nicely the electrical system was um, laid out. It was all done very beautifully. And I think one of the engineers, the SpaceX engineers, said, we're quite happy to come over and talk to you when you're working on your electrical side because we know it's all organised. The other teams, we don't even want to go near them because it's just <laughs> things are going everywhere. Our, our approach was very um, industry standard in an industrial sense. So we used central PLC control unit. I don't know what that means. What it's, is that? Essentially, it's a standard... Um, logic controller that's oh, okay. used in all sorts of uh, industrial applications. Right, okay. So um, something that's that's real, that's already being used. That's, that's right. Yeah. Very robust, yeah. um, has very good cabling route options and was a very tidy package at the end of the day. So, so I've got some good feedback on that end. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to ask, did you meet Elon Musk or...? Uh, I think it was a bit of a sore point along with, <laughs> along with a lot of the team members. Because he's a bit of an idol to a fair few people, and he was so where we were set up, there was like pods down each side of the road, and he walked down one side. He was coming back. He was about to get to us, and then he ducked off around the corner. No, <laughs> the, oh. the fanfare is amazing. Yeah, I was I was blown away at how the swarms yeah. of people just came rushing as soon as they heard that Elon was going to be at the end of the road. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe maybe next year you can you can meet Elon. 
All right, so you came out of that with with a really a highly commended for your brake system. So now, what's next for Vic Hyper? I mean, like, when will I get to jump in a tube and launch myself at the speed of sound um, to Sydney? Well, I'll start with the what's next first. <laughs> okay, um, okay. Because that one's a bit of a big, big, uh, big answer. It's uh, a longer road. Yeah, to, yeah a bit okay. of a long term yep. plan. But um, over the last year and a half um, since we started the competition, we really we realised a lot that people just love this they they see the necessity for um not just australia but countries across the world need a system like this and australia is the most ideal place in the world really for it melbourne and sydney um with your people people movement so what we've done is we've actually um incorporated the company into a company and we're going to push ahead on developing technology towards hyperloop products and making people aware within australia on what's what it is so Hopefully it won't be too long until I'm hurtling across Australia in Hyperloop. (laughs) Well, Zach and John, thank you so much for coming to Lost in Science and telling us a little bit about this new form of transportation. I mean, how long has it been since there's been a new form of transportation invented? It's pretty amazing. That's right. It's it's a big vision. And I think in order for those sorts of leaps in technology to happen, you need to have people who believe in it and have contacts within industry to help them push that vision along as well well thanks again for coming in and i'm really looking forward to the future with vic hyper thank you very much for having us allergies can range from the mildly annoying of something like hay fever or an allergy to dust to the life-threatening allergies which cause anaphylaxis from things like peanuts and shellfish in a lot of people. While we can treat the symptoms of allergies, it has been, up until now, relatively difficult to treat the causes, which is basically the human immune system. I've got with me on the line Dr Ray Steptoe from the University of Queensland who is going to talk to us about some new research which may help pave the way to treating the causes of allergies. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Dr Steptoe. Uh, My pleasure. So what is the cause of an allergy? Can we break that down to a simple explanation? So I, I think a simple explanation is that the body's immune system loses its capacity to regulate its normal responses and it starts to overreact to normal environmental agents. You know, and this might happen because you have a genetic predisposition or it could be that as a child you were exposed to allergens at a time when perhaps you had a viral infection or whatever and that really started to generate an immune response and then what happens over time and those people with allergies will understand that Each time you're exposed to an allergen, that immune response gets bigger. And so that's a feature of the immune system which we call memory. And so what happens is that you get exposed to an allergen, you develop a memory. The next time you get exposed to that allergen, the response gets a little bit bigger, builds a little bit more memory, if you like, so it kind of imprints this response. And then each time you're exposed, that response gets bigger and bigger. And so what we're trying to do is to interrupt that process of memory formation or the retention of the immune memory. So it sort of works on a, on a positive reinforcement. Each time it gets exposed, it gets uh, a boost to the response. Is that, is that's, that... that's absolutely correct, yes. 
Right, so w- what have you been doing uh, in your research to try and find a way around that so that these non-threatening substances don't trigger an immune response? So what we've been doing is looking at the fundamental function of the immune system and this has been uh, work that's been ongoing for me for maybe about the last 20 years and this particular project we've been working on for maybe about eight years. And so what we've learnt as immunologists is how to control some aspects of the immune system. And so the approach that we use is a gene therapy approach to enable cells within the immune system, which we call dendritic cells, to enable those cells to train the immune system so that the bad response that we don't want is reduced. How do you go about training living cells? We take advantage of this very, very small population of cells within the immune system that is very important, and they're called dendritic cells. And they're the cells which tell the immune system to respond when you have a bacterial infection, And they're also the cells, surprisingly, that tell the immune system when not to respond, say, to normal body proteins. So we take advantage of that ability of those cells to tell the body not to respond. And the way that we do that is we take some blood stem cells. And the reason we use blood stem cells is because the immune system is derived from blood cells. And so blood stem cells actually give rise to all cells of the immune system. We take the stem cells and we insert a small gene which controls the expression of the protein that we would like to prevent the responses to. So we insert a small amount of the thing that's detrimental. We do that in a way that that small protein is then expressed in the dendritic cells and it tricks the body into believing that that's a normal body component. And then when those dendritic cells grow up from the stem cells that we transfer back, they then start to train the immune system and tell them that this protein that you were previously allergic to is a normal protein and you should not be responding to it. So these reprogrammed dendritic cells, they go around and teach the immune system to ignore certain things? That's absolutely right. And in fact, we actually call the process that occurs exhaustion. And so what happens is that the dendritic cells meet up with the the very small number of T cells that would normally cause this pathogenic response. And because they're expressing that protein, the T cell encounters that protein a lot. And that continued exposure to that protein then drives them into a state which we call exhaustion. And they're no longer able to mediate any pathogenic effects. So they're coming up against things which aren't threats, which makes them basically exhausted so they can't defend against actual threats is that that's absolutely correct if if you like we put them to sleep (laughs) okay now i understand this is potentially useful for for standard allergies that people do have pollen and dust and that sort of thing and and peanuts and shellfish as i said which are potentially life-threatening is there any application for autoimmune responses that you could potentially see coming out of this research So we've shown very similar effects in in autoimmunity and we have a preclinical model where we looked at whether this kind of approach would prevent autoimmune rejection of, for instance, transplanted pancreatic islets. So this is a model that in some ways replicates the response that would occur in a type 1 diabetic if they were transplanted with replacement insulin producing cells and we find that we get a very similar effect there as well. We want to take what we've learned using these preclinical models 
and then start to apply that using human cells. It's pretty amazing stuff. I mean, uh, annoying as things like hay fever and asthma can be, and and life-threatening in some cases as well, but for the expansion of the idea into autoimmune diseases is a huge jump in our understanding of those illnesses and from the sound of things in our ability to possibly treat them in the future. Yeah, look, we have a long way to go with this. In most autoimmune diseases and in most allergies, for instance, an individual is not responding just purely to one protein, for instance. So if you were allergic to dust mites, for instance, there might be six or seven proteins that your body is recognising that's generated by the dust mite. And so we would need to induce tolerance, uh, we call the process tolerance, to each one of those individual proteins, and that's something that we're working on. And certainly that's the case also in autoimmune disease. So we need to be able to expand the breadth, if you like, of what we can target. And we also need to be able to make this approach more widely applicable in terms of how it could be used simply, for instance, you know, in a hospital clinic or in a local GP clinic, for instance. But still, it's still pretty amazing research that you've been a part of, Dr Steptoe, and I'd like to thank you for joining us on Lost in Science. We'll stay tuned to your future publications with great interest. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having me on your show. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.